as well and I'll change hats and then I'll say on behalf of the choir uh, we're pleased to be here so thank you for having us. Our choir is led by Ray Giesbrecht and uh, Fran Ginter is our accompanist. So as most of you know today is Palm Sunday. It's the day that remember we remember that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey and the crowds were hailing him as Jesus their king. They spread their cloaks and their palm branches on the road and shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is how Jesus began his last week on earth. But in the days that followed, the crowds would begin to turn against him. Jesus' authority would be challenged. Judas would agree to betray him. And then by Friday, Jesus was arrested and a trial was held and he was sentenced to be crucified. How things had changed in just a few days. So for an opening scripture, I'd like to read uh, from Matthew 21, first 11 verses, and this is Matthew's account of that entry into Jerusalem. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her coat by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, tell him that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to the daughter of Zion, see your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, placed their cloaks on them, and Jesus sat on them. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, 
while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your great love for us. We thank you for Jesus, who is willing to go through such terrible abuse and suffering, and then went to the cross bearing the burden of our sins. Our sins are many, but because of what Jesus did for us, we can be assured of the forgiveness of our sins and can look forward to eternal life with you, and we thank you for that. Fathers, we've come to worship you this morning. We thank you for being here among us. May all that is said and done today bring honor to you. Amen. So the men will lead us in a song.
take your uh, bulletins and in there you'll find uh, some hymns first one being Hosanna loud Hosanna and the second one come Christians join to sing we'll sing both of those at this time please stand and join us
just take a, a brief look at some of the announcements in the bulletin. On page two there, under focus on missions, we, our missionaries of the week are Preston and Myra Wheeler, serving with the Leader Impact, and then also Frontiers Canada. Uh, Frontiers has missionaries who serve in Muslim countries. So let's continue to remember them in prayer. Uh, near the bottom of the page, uh, persons with health needs, we have Mary Duick and John Suderman in Swan Lake, and Rita Friesen is in Morris at the Red River Valley Lodge, so let's continue to remember them. We have a note of thanks from John Zacharias, uh, good news that he's received, so that's uh, definitely a praise item. I'm going to put a little plug in for this afternoon. Uh, middle of the next page, there's a concert this afternoon. It's the Eden Fundraising Concert. And our choir will be singing there. I believe there's a quartet from Steinbeck area. And uh, I think Jamie Giesbrecht will have a couple of numbers as well. So if that's of interest to you, uh, you're most welcome to, to be there. That's at the Winkler Mennonite Church. Uh, I ask you to read the rest of the announcements on your own. There are some important announcements there. I have one other one that's not in your bulletin. So Yashers, if you're ready, you can come forward. Uh, Jacqueline Entz, uh, wife to Doug and daughter-in-law to John and Leona Entz, has been diagnosed with cancer. So Doug and Jackie are traveling to Texas this week for further tests. So let's uh, pray for them as they travel and pray for, for good results for them. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you are God and there is no other. We thank you again that through Jesus' death and resurrection, we have forgiveness of our sins and the assurance of eternal life with you. Father, we want to be faithful to you as we go about each day, and we ask for your help in that. We pray for those who have gone out to serve you, and we remember and pray for Preston and Myra as they serve with Leader Impact and as they connect with leaders in different parts of the world. Lord, we ask that you would give Preston much wisdom as he gives leadership to this ministry, and as the gospel is shared, may those who hear it be drawn to you. We also pray for the Ministry of Frontiers Canada and that your spirit would be at work as the gospel is shared with unreached Muslim people groups. 
Lord, we bring before you those who are dealing with health concerns. We pray for Mary Duick, for John Suderman, and Rita Friesen. Lord, we ask that you would grant them patience and a sense of your presence as they wait for placement back into our community. We also know that of a number of people who are at home and dealing with health issues, and we ask, Lord, for your hand of healing to be upon them. We pray for Jackie and Doug Enns as they travel to Texas this week. <coughs> Father, we ask that you would grant them safe travels. We pray for wisdom for the doctors as they assess and determine a course of treatment, and we pray for healing for Jackie from her cancer. Lord, we also thank you for the good news that John Zacharias has received following his surgery and that there's no evidence of any remaining cancer. So we pray that he would heal well from his surgery. We pray also for Pastor Victor and ask that you would guide his words as he brings us the message this morning. And Lord, that you would give us clear minds as we listen. And then, Father, as we go into the coming week, Help us to be mindful of the events of this week that happened so many years ago, of the suffering and sacrifice of Jesus, and ultimately his victory over death and his resurrection. Thank you, Lord, that there is nothing that we need to do to earn our salvation. You've done it all for us. All you ask is that we place our trust in you. And now as we take our offering, we pray that these gifts would be used to further your work. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Gates are filled with sorrow and care, hearts are lonely and dreary. Burdens are lifted at Calvary, Jesus is very Jesus is there. 
This morning's scripture reading is taken from Luke chapter 16, verses 19 to 31. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place, so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, They have Moses and the prophets, let them, let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to them, they do not If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. Thank you, Jay. Today is Palm Sunday, as we've already acknowledged. And on this day, we remember that Jesus deliberately entered Jerusalem, knowing that his time had come. He entered on a young donkey. He entered on a carpet of palm branches. He entered like a king, hailed by the praises of his followers. And he entered ready to face the den of vipers that were scheming against him and all the powers of darkness. This morning I will preach the message that I was going to preach a few weeks ago when our service was canceled due to a dump of snow. Hopefully we don't have too many of those left this year. <laughs> you might wonder if it is a thematic conflict to preach about hell on Palm Sunday, uh, but I think it's a good fit. Hell is the destination of all who oppose God. Hell is what Jesus came to save us from. And on the cross of Calvary, the battle for the souls of men took place to redeem believing people from everything they deserve so that God could accomplish his goal. And what is God's goal? Paul captured it in a quote from Leviticus when he wrote in 2 Corinthians in chapter 6. Uh, he said, God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem was his charge into battle to defeat the enemy 
and to lay down his life to accomplish the Father's goal. So how do people understand hell? How do we understand hell? Some people talk about hell like it's an ancient myth or legend, thinking it to be an outdated concept for life and death in this world, equated with the gods of ancient Greece or Rome. In today's world, hell probably falls into the category of fairy tale, along with Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy. Others see hell as a Christian concept whose opposite is heaven, where the God of Christianity judges souls according to their deeds and sends them to heaven or to hell according to those deeds. Some believe hell to simply be a fabrication of the church to make people feel guilty so that they can be controlled and coerced to give away their money. The views on hell that concern me the most uh, are those that are taking hold within the church in our own province. For example, uh, when I was at CMU just a few years ago, one of my professors was teaching universal salvation. This view holds that even though unrepentant sinners may have to spend some time in hell for the punishment of their sins, that time will be limited, and eventually all people will be welcomed into heaven. Another view that exists in some Mennonite churches is that those who do not make it to heaven are simply annihilated. They just cease to exist. No suffering, no eternity. Some Christians have a lot of trouble getting their heads around the idea that some people will spend eternity in torment. And therefore, they reject the idea of hell altogether, saying that a good God would not, could not, send anyone to such a horrible place. That's as far as their reasoning goes, and they fail to consider that God might actually have something to say about it. The Luke passage that was read for us is fascinating for several reasons, but for now I'd just like to point out one thing. In Luke 16, Jesus began a parable in verse 1 and again in verse 19. And both started the same way, and both talk about choices. But there's something different about the second one. Anyone want to guess what it is? <laughs> I know. <laughs> I don't want to give the wrong answer. Uh, the, the difference is names. Jesus does not use names in parables. The characters in parables are referred to by the characteristics that identify them. So you've got the rich man, the widow, the judge, the manager, the landowner, etc. However, in the story of Lazarus and the rich man, you will notice that Lazarus is a man with a name. Verse 29 says that the poor man was named Lazarus, which implies that someone named him, which further implies that there's a history and a community behind the man Lazarus. In other words, this may not be a parable at all, but a true account. And if anyone could relay such an account, 
it would be the one who created both the people and the places in it. If this is the case, Jesus is talking about hell as a real place. Hell is a New Testament word. It is a translation of the word Gehenna, which is defined as a place of punishment for the dead, hell. The Greek word Gehenna comes from a Hebrew phrase meaning Valley of Hinnom. That valley was a ravine running along the south side of Old Jerusalem. It was a place where the garbage from the city was burnt along with the dung of their animals and the dead bodies of animals and criminals. The Valley of Hinnom is also associated with the practice of child sacrifice to the Canaanite god Molech. According to late popular Jewish belief, the last judgment was to take place in this valley. And that's why the word Gehenna, by its figurative representation, took on the meaning hell. Hades is another word that Jesus used, and its meaning is a little different. Hades is simply the abode of the dead for either the righteous or the unrighteous. Hades is similar in meaning to the Old Testament word Sheol, which also means abode of the dead. Sheol appears 65 times in the Bible. Four times Sheol is compared to heaven as an, uh, yeah, compared to heaven as an opposite. Isaiah 7:11 says, "Ask a sign of the Lord your God, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven." If Sheol is referenced as an opposite to heaven, that already says something about Sheol. I found at least five verses that showed Sheol as a place to be saved from. Hosea 13:14 declares, I shall ransom them from the power of Sheol, I shall redeem them from death. And Psalm 30, which says, O Lord, you have brought up my soul from Sheol, you restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. Sheol is a place of death. It is where the dead are. I also looked at other words that describe Sheol, Isaiah 14 speaks of Sheol as a pit, a place in which maggots are your bed and worms are your covering. Isaiah 28 reveals it as a place of deception. And Psalm 16 hints that Sheol is a place of abandonment. Sheol has the power to hold you in its grasp, to tangle you with the cords of death. It is a place of destruction and death. I found a couple of verses that list things that are not in Sheol. Psalm, in Psalm 6, verse 5, the psalmist says to God, For in death there is no remembrance of you. In Sheol, who will give you praise? And then in Ecclesiastes, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol, to which you are going. <laughs> if these depictions are understood strictly on the physical level, then it is an apt description of being dead, and could be applied to the righteous and the unrighteous. 
So that is a description of Hades or Sheol. Let's see what the New Testament has to say about hell. If it wasn't for Jesus telling us about hell, we would have very little information in the New Testament. James and Peter each mention hell one time. Peter also refers to Hades a couple of times in Acts. Jesus, on the other hand, is our primary teacher on hell. And he used various terms to reference it. Three times Jesus referred to outer darkness. Seven times uh, Jesus used the phrase weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he used the word hell a dozen times. And if we turn to Revelation, hell is referred to by other words like the abyss, the pit, or the bottomless pit. The pit is also used 44 times in the Old Testament to refer to Sheol. There are over 150 references to the abode of the dead. Some appear to be neutral, but most of those references make it out to be a horrible place. Why am I telling you all this? There's enough teaching in Scripture about the spiritual underworld that we cannot dismiss it as some (coughs) obscure concept. It is real, and it must be taken seriously. So if hell is real, and if it's as horrible as the Scriptures say, why does it need to exist? Why did God create it in the first place? I think we could say that Hell exists because sin exists. Hell is real because sin is real. There's not one person since Adam who who is not guilty of opposing God. God gave Adam a choice in the garden. He said that Adam could eat from any tree in the garden, but not that one. Do you think it was a unique tree? That there was something special in the fruit of that tree that would awaken the knowledge of good and evil? The tree itself was like any other tree in the garden. But the moment that Adam bit the fruit of that tree, he realized that he had opposed God. That realization was the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam knew that he had done evil in opposing God, and it would have been good to obey him. It was suddenly crystal clear to him. That same choice is ours every day. Whenever we bite the fruit of a choice that is contrary to God, we refresh our knowledge of good and evil. We have all committed Adam's sin. And just as all humans have that choice to make, it appears that angels do as well. In Luke 10, at verse 18, Jesus said to his disciples, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Satan also committed Adam's sin, and it cost him big time. Do you remember Matthew 25, where Jesus spoke about the separation of the sheep and the goats? Verse 41 of that chapter says, Then he will say to those on his left, 
Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire. Jesus is the one who prepared that place. He is the creator of all things, according to Colossians 1.16, and he created a place for those who oppose him, those who want to be God, those who do not want there to be a God, and those who do not believe God. Hell is real because sin is real. Another question we could ask is, for whom did God create hell? Well, back to Matthew 25. This time I'll finish the verse. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Hell was not created for people. Jude wrote, And the angels, who did not stay within their position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Hell is a place to keep disobedient angels until God deals with them. It's a little bit like the days of my own childhood disobedience, when mom would tell me, Go and wait in your bedroom till dad gets home. And then judgment was passed. <laughs> a place was designated for me to wait. A place has been designated for the angels to wait. So if hell is for rebellious angels, why are people sent there? Because there needs to be a place for people who likewise rebel against God. Seven of Jesus' parables ended with the words, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. In those parables, Jesus addressed lawbreakers, those who are evil, workers of evil, the devious, the slothful, the faithless. These kinds of people end up in hell. Proverbs 21.16 says, One who wanders from the way of good sense will rest in the assembly of the dead. Hell is also a place for fools. Numbers 16 records one of Moses' encounters with rebels. Uh, if you haven't read Numbers for a while, give it a read. There's a whole string of rebellions in there and uh, some good encouragement not to do that. But Moses said, If the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods so that they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. People who despise the Lord end up in hell. One day during his last week, Jesus was speaking to the crowds, and as Matthew 23 records, Jesus confronted the scribes and the Pharisees about their hypocrisy. You might recall the seven woes with which he rebuked them. And at the end of that rebuke, 
He said this, You serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Jesus didn't say this to Roman authorities. He said this to the shepherds of God's flock. Why would Jesus use such strong language? The leaders of the believing community are held to a stricter standard because when they go wrong, they lead many astray. I am afraid for many church leaders who lead their flocks into the jaws of death by swallowing all the sexual perversions of our society and preaching them to their people as truth. How long can they go down that road and not be in danger of the same sentence? Hell is for those who lead God's people astray. Second Peter 2 has harsh words for them. False prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. You get that? Many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Those are the kinds of people who will find themselves in hell. So what is hell like? Some of the names of hell begin to reveal what hell is like. The pit. You can imagine the Valley of Hinnom being full of garbage and corpses and the dark rituals of child sacrifice. That would be a start. Jesus called place, uh, sorry, Jesus called hell a place of outer darkness. And that's not just the absence of light. It's the, also the absence of anything righteous. Peter called it a place of gloomy darkness. Jesus called hell a place where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. And he's not just talking about a gentle sobbing. He's talking about weeping and wailing in panic, in bitterness, in anger, in hatred, in rage. If we turn back to the account of Lazarus and the rich man in Luke 16, the first thing we learn is that it is a place of torment. The rich man cried out to Father Abraham, seeking relief from the anguish of the flame. The torment came from being in a place of fire. After the rich man begged for relief, Father Abraham replied that there was a great chasm fixed between them that no one may cross. Hell is isolated from the rest of creation. None who go there come back. This shuts down the idea that evildoers will only be in hell for a short time. Hell is a place of punishment, a place of abandonment, a place of fire and of torment. 
Hell is a place where every good thing is absent. Imagine for a moment what that means. People who think they will be happy in hell because they'll be with their buddies are quite mistaken. Fellowship is a good thing. In hell there will be no fellowship. There will not be friendship or goodness or kindness or love or joy or peace and there will be no rest. Instead, there will be isolation, depression, malice, hatred, panic, anguish, exhaustion, and constant torment. Humanly speaking, one could accept that for sin, a terrible punishment is necessary. But the question that haunts a lot of people is this, must that punishment be forever? I think the answer comes back to the image of God, to how we were created. What did God create when he created us? If you recall when I preached uh, some time ago on the individual as the image of God, one of the ways in which we are created in God's likeness is that we are eternal. If I reject God, and if I am eternal, then there needs to be a place in eternity for those who oppose God. God created people so that he could dwell with them and that they would be his people and he would be their God forever. If that's the design, and I reject the design, then as an eternal being, I need a place to be without God forever. Scripture affirms this in Revelation 14 at verse 9. This is where the third of three angels makes a declaration to the peoples of earth. And here's what he will say. If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. These worshippers are of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. It is clear from this passage that all who do not worship God, but worship the beast, will experience the wrath of God. In conscious eternal torment with no relief. That same sentence is passed on Satan and all who are in league with him. After Satan has been bound during the thousand year reign of Christ, this is what happens. This is from Revelation chapter 20 at verse seven. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and he will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. <laughs> and here's the extent of the battle. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire 
fire and sulfur, where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Following this is the final judgment. Listen. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. If anyone's name was not written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Brothers and sisters, hell is a real place. Hell is real because sin is real. Hell is eternal because people are eternal. There is no escape for those who oppose God. God's intention in creating people to be eternal is that we would spend eternity with him. It is the rejection of God that makes eternity one of unending torment. But there's good news. Jesus is also real. He is the only escape we have from a future of conscious eternal torment. Jesus died on the cross in our place for our sins. Our sin debt has been paid with his life. That is our only claim to the Father for salvation. Isaiah wrote this, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned, everyone, to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Jesus entered Jerusalem on a donkey, on a road carpeted with palm branches to conquer the powers of hell and to free us from its grip. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus has saved us from the horrors of hell. He has saved us from what we deserve. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, these are awesome thoughts to think 
and they make us tremble. They make us tremble for the sake of those who don't know you, for those who don't even want you. Thank you for sending your Son, that his death reconciles us to you and that his resurrection is our guarantee of eternal life. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So I will admit, uh, after I found out what uh, Pastor Victor was preaching on, I had a little hard time choosing a closing song. <laughs> but uh, this is the song that came to my mind. This is my father's world. Let's stand and sing together. So let's sing the doxology and, uh, and then we'll patiently wait in line and then we'll go eat. <laughs> Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts.
Dios. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Father in heaven, we know every good gift is from you. We thank you for the fellowship that we can enjoy now and for this food. Thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.